sort of a, maybe a more traditional piece of the Christmas story, but kind of approach it in a somewhat non-traditional fashion. And I would like to, in a moment I'm going to, have us look at a passage that where many of us are familiar with, and not everyone is, that talk about the wise men. Before we even do that, I'm going to go ahead and pray. I'm going to ask God to bless our time together. And Lord, I thank you. We've already been able to have a chance to sing to you. Um, we opened up the service declaring that you were Emmanuel. You're God with us. And, and we, we get to now, Lord, you know, decide how we're going to spend these next few minutes. And I pray that, you know, since we, we made the decision to invest our time into a point of honoring you and coming to your house, I pray that you, you would then meet us in that intention. And that as much as we can say we're open to you, and we want to hear your words and help us, I pray this, Lord. I pray for your peace and your grace and your mercy to be among us. We all need it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, God. <clears throat> so, Matthew 2, I want to read um, a couple of verses. And again, I'm not going to really be looking at Matthew's account of the wise men, the fabled wise men, which, by the way, every, you know, a lot of times people say there was three of them because that's the nativity scene. And I get that because there were three gifts. We don't really know how many there were. Um, we also know that they weren't actually there at the birth of Christ. They actually arrived a little bit later. But if we were, and we were just doing a study on it, um, I would spend even a lot more time. But I want to use it as a platform because I actually have um, a mini agenda here. And I have a desire. And that is to help actually position us for how we think about the next 10, 10 days. And then leading into Christmas, I would, I would like us to think about this as an opportunity. And then I also want us to be thinking a little bit about the six to seven days coming out of Christmas that leads us into a new year and how we should also be thinking about approaching that for maximum value and what, that, what maybe God might want to do there. So, so there's a desire on my part to get us to actually be intentional about how we're approaching Christmas and the new year. So let's just read from Matthew 2. Verse 1 and 2, and then we'll read actually through a few more verses later on. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and then they just fell down, they worshiped him. And when they opened up their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, who was the king at Jerusalem at the time, they departed for their own country. They went another way. Now, it's generally understood that the wise men were also, also sometimes called the Magi. Um, they were evidently learned men who had come, probably in a caravan, from the east, living in a region beyond the Euphrates. I asked them if they could put up a map. <clears throat> kind of gives us a little bit of an idea. Again, I just think it's so helpful to remember that the Bible is, is embedded in historical geographical reality. And the places that we talk about, places like Babylon and Persia, where the river Euphrates is, these places are known by different names today, just as much a part of the, our real world experience. Babylon, of course, Iraq, Persia, Iran. We think of these empires as they once were and how they impacted 
so much of Israel and the Old Testament is affected a lot by these global movements of powers. And um, one of the things we see here is that this was the place, the region, that these wise men were said to have come from, from the east. They were evidently, if you do a study on the Magi, they were men of science, they were men of philosophy. They were actually had medical skills as well and were from a kind of class or caste that had a religious orientation. Yes, it was overlaid with superstition. Nonetheless, it carried with it a deep respect for the writings. In fact, we know of the Bible, particularly the, what we call the Older Testament, and one writer in particular stood out for them. And three of the most prominent ancient historians, um, Josephus, of the, that were around uh, the time of Jesus was Josephus, and then of course there was Tacitus, Suetonius. These men all talked about how there was during this period of the birth of Christ a prevailing kind of concept or belief that there would come a, a birth of a great king. And so there was a, seemed to be a kind of expectation that existed in the Far East around the birth of a great king in Palestine. And at the time, it would have been only known as Judea and where Jerusalem was. And again, uh, you know, these, these expectations probably were connected to the prophetic writings of another man who had been taken captive, you know, centuries before, from, carried from the area of Jerusalem and Judea and Israel over to the land of Babylon and Persia, that whole area there. His name was Daniel. There's a, Bible, there's a book in the Bible named Daniel that he writes. Daniel was <clears throat> brought in as a young man and ultimately groomed to hold a place of power. He becomes an overarching figure witnessing the fall of one empire and the rise of another. It's a fascinating life that spanned um, you know, the highest levels of power. He was part of a regal court, highly respected, revered as having great insight and skill. But he also wrote things that he felt God had said to him about what was going to happen to his people. And, one of it, and part of his writings had to do with the promise of Messiah. And so people in that area would have been very familiar with the prophetic writings of Daniel. And they would have been aware of the fact that he had talked about the birth of Messiah, the king of Israel. And so when you, when you are aware, kind of thinking about it, we know that they were also students of astronomy as well. And again, having some degree of superstition, we know that they, they were motivated because they saw um, a sign, as they saw, described uh, it, would be described as a sign in the heavens, a star appeared. Now, what's fascinating is Kepler, the great astronomer of the late 16th and early 17th century, describes in his mathematics, in what his mind is, around this time, the appearance of, of a, a temporary appearance of a brilliant star. So it's not out, completely out of a, a con context either from just an, an astronomical point of view. And what he, what he describes is that there was this star, that, this brilliant star that may have appeared. And the, the, wise, the wise men, as they're called, if you combine the fact that they see this, this appearance of a, of a unique star in the sky, and they see also this coinciding with the timing of Daniel's writings, it would make sense that they would make their way, as they would confess, to Jerusalem to see the, Greek, the king who was born. So that's what moves them along. What we know is that as they, were, as they made their way there, though, there were some different things that happened. But a lot of it is connected to the star. And that's why some of the stars are kind of part of the whole Christmas narrative. But I was, I was reading, actually, about stars. It kind of intrigued me. 
And someone was talking about Kepler and the brilliant star that appeared and all that. And uh, I, I want to just kind of, I'm going to read something to you. Just listen to it. I found it fascinating. It said this, the sun is 93 million miles away. And again, I'm not a scientist or a physicist, but I'm a, I find this amazing. It says that 93 miles away from the earth is the sun. And the nearest star, this article says, other than the sun, is a quarter of a million times farther from the earth. At a distance of more than four light years away, equaling more than 25 trillion miles. Can't even conceive that. It went on to suggest that astronomers know, at the time of this writing, of about 2,000 stars within 50 light years of our solar system. The brightness of these stars is measured in magnitudes, the lowest numbers allotted to the brightest star. So the lower the number of magnitude, the brighter the star. These brilliant points of light are considered first magnitude stars. Stars beyond our solar system, beyond our galaxy, listen to this, are numberless. There is no number. And our minds fail when we try to imagine the infinite vastness of stars and space. And then the article went on to say something that just completely caught me off guard. I just, I couldn't believe it. It, it seemed incredible to me. It said, there appears to be more bodies, stars, in the heavens, the size of the earth or larger, than there are, check this out, grains of sand on the earth. Is that intense or what? I couldn't even, I go, what? The grains of sand on the earth? There are more stars that exist, the size of the earth are larger in the, I mean, you realize how small we really are. It's astonishing, it's stunning. No wonder Einstein, when he was thinking about the universe, and I put this quote in your handout, said these words. <clears throat> he said, my religion consists of a humble admiration, and he uses this phrase to describe God, of the illimitable superior spirit who reveals himself in the slight details we are able to perceive with our frail and feeble minds. That deeply emotional conviction of the presence of a superior reasoning power which is revealed in the incomprehensible, think about it, universe, forms my idea of God. I mean, it would seem that the God, what Einstein refers to, God, the, illim the illimitable superior spirit, for God is a spirit, as Jesus said, who created this vast and unfathomable, or as Einstein referred to it, this incomprehensible, when you think about it, universe, that somehow God, who orchestrated all of this, that he, he created a moment where a portion of his creation stood out in a phenomenal way. And the Magi saw it, the wise men saw it, and they saw it as a sign that God's, God's promise that he had made through the, the man Daniel was about to be, be something that was going to come to pass. And so they made their way to Jerusalem. But the idea that somehow God, God moved a, a star to lead them to the, if I can call it, the incognito star of Christmas the one that was in disguise that no one noticed. You know, at the time, it looked like the least impressive thing that God could have ever done was the way he did it. I, at the time, if you would have said, who's greatness? Who's a king? I mean, you had the Roman Empire, an empire at the time that looked like it would never end. You had a new a, a Caesar, Caesar Augustus, whose power had extended far beyond even Caesar, his, his, his predecessor. It was a world power without any rival, with an extension of, of power that was unseen and never ever has actually quite been equaled. 
Uh, it, it stretched into Europe and into Asia and into Africa, stunning, astonishing expanse of territory under one world domination, essentially by the rule of Rome and the power of Rome. It was a peace that was enforced by the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, Pax Romana. It was something that was held by the violent armies of Rome. Everything was held in check. It looked, if you were to, the irony is, Rome has faded long away in its glory. At the time, if you would have been in Jerusalem, the last thing you would have been thinking about is um, some baby being born. And yet that baby born was God changing, about to change this world as we know it. The most amazing thing that was going on wasn't even seen by a vast majority of people nor ever noted. But the thing that was ultimately designed to change our world was occurring, and very few saw it. A couple of things we are told about happens that certain people notice. Heaven breaks out every now and then. A shepherd here, a group of men from the east here, there, but very few, relatively speaking. Uh, um, an old man in a temple with, with another widow seeing the baby. I mean, people know it, but so small. Nobody missed, everybody missed it. Here's what I want to get at. I really think that we can also miss this blessing of Christmas because it could pass us by because in, in reality, it doesn't demand our attention. It invites us into it. And so what I'm going to try and suggest in the minutes that we have left is that I would like us to wrestle with, and maybe, you know what, and the things that I put up on the board Maybe one or two of them will connect more. But what I want us to do is be thinking about how we can be approaching these next 10 days and these days leading into Christmas and then also how maybe we are to head out of Christmas into the new year. But let me talk about the Christmas season and what I think it invites us into. One of the things I want to suggest is that the Christmas season invites us, it really is a season for searching. And... Everything about it, it's certainly in our story. Jesus said, <laughs> I think we know this, that Jesus said, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. <clears throat> Ask, it will be given. I mean, this idea, the Lord invites us into places of seeking. And the wise men were searchers. They were inquirers. They were diligent pursuers. They were ultimately discoverers and finders but it had to do with the desire to search. And so part of what we are invited to do in these days that are coming ahead of us is to be, is to like, um, maybe the best way I would describe it is, we get, can we set ourselves in a search mode? Searching for a signal. Can we be intentional about saying, look, you know what, I'm leaving, when I leave the Lord's house today, I want to be thinking about being in a search mode for the voice of the Lord in my life. Um, in the midst of all the things that are going on, and there's a lot of things happening, a lot of it's good, a lot of it's fun, parties and family gatherings and, you know, different things that we're participating in and, you know, purchasing things, all those things that go into this sort of Christmas time, eating. But, but what about pursuing the plans that he has for us? What about searching our own heart? What I'm advocating for and some small way challenging all of us around, is can we make some time in the midst of all of this to pull aside and ponder what the meaning of Jesus' coming really invites us into? And really, really honestly think, Lord, you know, I invite you even into my heart. I invite you into, I, I want to search my heart, Lord, even as I'm searching for you. I want to take a look at myself before you. Um, maybe the Lord is calling some of us to search for places that he's calling us to. And I use that as a metaphor.
Are there places he's calling us to? What would that look like to get there, to start on that journey with him? Are there places he's maybe calling us from because I can't get to where he wants me to go if I keep holding on to this thing? Searching for him may have to do sometimes with letting go. We talk about that a lot. The other thing I want to say about it is, and I just kind of piggyback right onto it, is that Christmas is not only a time for searching, it's also a time for rejoicing because one of the things we know with absolute certainty, if we can believe anything God has to say, believe this, that we are desperately loved and we are remembered. You know, one of the verses that's not often referred to at Christmas time, but in my mind, because I know it wasn't given with that context, but it, to me, it's totally relatable to this, to this season. It's probably the most quoted verse in the Bible. I never tire of talking about it nor quoting it. But John 3.16, it actually, it actually has everything to do with Christmas, even though it's not a Christmas verse. Because God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting, the undying life of God overflowing now and yet to be. It's a marvelous, amazing promise that flows out of the very lips of Jesus, for he was speaking of himself. The giving, the giving of Jesus, the giving of God's only son, only begotten son, this, this gift to the human race out of the vastness of whatever exists far beyond what we can conceive, the God of eternity enters into time and space and becomes like us. He becomes small. Not only does he become like one of us, he becomes utterly vulnerable. He becomes one born in a womb, tethered to another human being before he comes out of that womb. Think about it, utterly dependent, totally vulnerable, such is God. What a picture of a Lord who invites us into relationship. I mean, think about that. Christmas says, you know what it says? It says, you and I are not abandoned. We're not forgotten. We're not just left for dead. We're not, we, don't, we count God, we matter to God. In some way, we matter. He didn't have to do it that way. It's what, how he chose to do it. He would give, he, he was born to give himself for us, to give us life by giving his life away so that we might have a life that only could come by him giving his life on our behalf. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing thing that we are being given. And it's a reminder that we are loved. Not only does God love the world and God love humanity, God love people, but Jesus reminds us that God loves us individually, that he comes in the, into the places where maybe sometimes we are most ashamed. The dirty places, the messy places, the obscure places, the forgotten places, the overlooked places. Again, nobody was, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a, in a manger with dirt and animals and, and it, it wasn't so bucolic and, and tidy and clean. It was messy and dirty and muddy. They were sent to the inn, the room. When there was no room in the inn, they were sent to the stable. That was not a room prepared for people. That was a place where, you know, kind of a last resort place. Think about this. God comes into this world in a mess. And he still is not afraid of our mess. And for, for that, I will always be grateful. Are there things we're struggling with? Are there things that we're our own worst enemy around? That's part of thinking about this time. What does that mean? He'll come anywhere. He'll meet us there. He'll meet us in our doubts. He says, all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. Just a little bit of faith creates a foothold for me to work in your life. You don't have to have it all figured out. He says, just have a little bit of faith.
and watch what I can do. God, maybe some of us are struggling with fears. Maybe sometimes we're struggling with discouragement around our own self-destructive tendencies or our inability to break emotionally free of things. Like we want to, but then a part of us doesn't. We find ourselves in constant struggle. It might have to do with things that we're afraid of. It might have to do with hopes and aspirations or feelings of loneliness. I don't know. Where is he wanting to meet us? This is a good thing for us here because Christ is inviting us to have an exchange with him. And so the fact that so many people all over the world are marking this moment, I think creates a unique kind of thing in the spiritual atmosphere that makes this time like very few other times during the year. I think the fact that so many people are going to pause and think about the coming of Jesus in whatever way, shape, or form that they do creates some type of an opening, a spiritual opportunity. I'll take that and I'll push it into it a little bit more deeply. I want to suggest that Christmas is also a time for focusing our gaze on, on God in, in worship. Um, I think that it, he invites us to do it. Um, you know what? And things will happen as we look at Jesus. We will realize he is the beautiful one. And the more we look at him, here's the cool thing about the Lord. The more we look at him, <laughs> the more impressive he becomes. I say, the more we gaze on the beautiful one, the more beautiful he becomes. A lot of times we look at people like human beings, like all of us. And honestly, the more, the more we were to get into things, the more flaws we would see, the more contradictions we would see. That's just because we're human beings and we, we struggle with things. Pride, ways of being that are inconsistent. Sometimes, But you know what? When we look at Jesus, the more he's looked on, the more we see that he is everything he said he was. He becomes the more beautiful the more we look. I, remind, I was reminded of a story that I read because I was reminded, you know, I was reading this account about how Hollywood stars are really into their outer, everybody's into their appearance, I suppose, but some people have an image they want to hold. And I was reading about an iconic figure of the 1930s who was what, probably the most uh, well-known female actress of that era, which just reminds us again of how fleeting fame is, because I'm going to say the name, <clears throat> and some of you are going to go, who's that, right? It's not going to mean anything. But at the time, um, someone who was just known for her beauty and also for cultivating an image in film at the time was a lady named Marlena Dietrich. And she was, like, very, um, how would we say, concise in the way that she managed her perception, the perception of her in public. And she was very concerned about the way she was lit. Again, this is before Photoshop, all right? This is like, this is like they, but they would do things with the camera a lot of times to create a certain um, aura. You know, they could do certain things with filters and lighting. One of the things is that she was always concerned about how she was photographed. And um, there was this account of a famous photographer at the time whose name was Joseph Karsh. And they were dining at a restaurant in New York. And the movie star, Marlene Dietrich, came in and she just swept in with her entourage, right? The big, big movement into the restaurant. And every eye, it says, was upon her as she paraded around. And then she stopped, though, at Yosef Karsh's table, the, great, the photographer's table. And she said in front of everybody, she said this disdainfully. She, and I'm going to try to capture what she said, the way she said it, at least as it's described. Those photos you've just taken of me are atrocious. They're hideous. You used to be the best. But now you're just pathetic. 
in front of everybody. I remember the first pictures you ever did of me. They were fantastically beautiful. Not missing a beat, using all the diplomacy that he could muster, Karsh replied amidst the onlooker's stunned silence. Yes, they were beautiful pictures, my dear, but you must bear in mind that I was 20 years younger when I took those pictures. <laughs> that's fantastic, right? I mean, that, how do you do that? That's like, yes, all right? Photographers don't age, all right, just so you know. Um, but the thing is, the beauty of Jesus, his beauty doesn't fade. <laughs> it doesn't fade. It's not like 20 years matters to him. He's as beautiful now as he was in generations past. And the songs that we sing were the same songs. That's why I like to sing the carols at times. We might sing them differently, and, but the, the words. I mean, we, we're connecting with generations of people who've expressed a love for Jesus, and he was as beautiful to them, and he's still beautiful to us. And I'll tell you another thing. A lot of times we, we forget how much of the Christmas story is immersed in joy and song and light. The reason a lot of these things symbolically are involved in the celebration is because they're all connected to the story, song and poetry and light and joy. You know, when the wise men come, what do they do? They bow low and they worship and they give their gifts, just as God invites us to do, to come low in humility, to give them the gifts of our life. What do we have to bring? That's something worth pondering. Lord, what gifts that you've given to me am I to bring for you into this world? You are the great light. The light has come. How am I to reflect that light in my family, in my job, in my social networks of friendships? How, how can I reflect you better? Do you have a growth path for me? Do you have things that you want me to pursue for you, to be for you? These are all kinds of things, you know, that he wants, he wants us to be thinking about. And in my mind, and this will be the last thing I'll kind of connected to, just like the wise men were warned by God to go in a different direction than the one they had come, because Herod was, if, if you check, read the story, he's like this crazy psychopath king. That's the only way I can describe him, because you know what he does? When he finds out that the Messiah, the king, the, 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 the one that these men have come to worship might actually be alive, he decides, he figures out the region and he decides to have every male child under the age of two killed. And the Lord warns the wise men in a dream, I don't want you going back to that man. You need to go in a different direction. There's just this amazing confluence of, of the evil of humanity and the goodness of God. And one of the things I think the Lord will invite us to, and I, I know that's just like a kind of stark statement, but I do want to say this, is I think that this is the Christmas season. This will be the last thing I'll show, we'll put up to think about. But the Christmas season does invite us, I think, to, to think about letting God speak to us about the new plans that he has for us as we make our way into this season of time we call a new year. We mark it. Um, it's, it. I don't know how it's supposed to play out. But I tell you this, there's an opportunity in these next 10 days and then the seven days after that, there's a natural momentum in the culture that lends itself to repositioning and to rethinking about our lives. And I'm really big on taking advantage of the momentum. I think that it's a perfect time to take inventory of the year that has been, to mark it in gratitude to God, to say thank you for Jesus and what his coming means, 
do that. Because by the way, a lot of times we're going to hear speaking of songs and worship and all. But one of the ways we can, we can do this is by focusing on the songs that we're singing, these carols that are connecting us to generations past. You know, when we sing them, oh, you know, we'll be outside, we'll be in an elevator, we'll be at a department store. It's one of those unusual times of the year where all of a sudden you'll start hearing a Christmas song that's being sung, and people hear it all the time. They don't even think about the words. But if you listen to the words, it's like big-time theology going on there in those words. The God who condescends into time. The silent night and the darkness comes the light of the world. All these, you know, even things like Hark the Herald Angels saying, you know, uh, it actually is quite intense. You listen to the words way more. You know, this idea of God's entry into the human experience, what that means for us. You know, it's about God breaking into time and space. All these things, you know, that, that we hear these songs. Maybe along the way this week, just in small ways, whether it's doing a little extra devotional together, like we talked about or whether it's pausing when we hear one of those songs and going, well, I'm going to listen to those words for them. I mean, really listen to them. Or when we sing them together, we really sing them, embrace them, own them. And then we th- say, Lord, what does that mean for us as we move into this new year? Um, what do you want me to be thinking about, especially that week coming out of Christmas? Um, how does your coming impact my life? And then is, am I living my life in a way that is informed or at least influenced, affected, impacted by the reality of your coming. I invite you to come. This is part of what I, I invite you also to come into my life in fresh ways, Lord. Your coming I acknowledge, and I invite you to come to me, even as you will someday come again. All of these things invite us. Some of the paths that God might be calling us into are new ways of growth for us, Others of them might be a returning to another path that we maybe have gotten off course and he wants us to go back to a place that's a healthy place for us. What does that look like? Some of us might be a growth path. I know for me, I, want, I, want, I have certain things that I'm, I'm, I feel like God wants me to pursue this year. I want to do that. I try to do something every year. It sort of becomes a theme of the year. I like to write it down. It, it may or may not be right on spot, you know, with what God is saying, but I think a lot of times it gets me at least thinking and praying in the right direction. So you know what? As we close this down, as we think about where we're heading, I want, you know, we're going to have the band. They're going to sing about this song about reflection, about us being a reflection of his light into our world as he is the true star, the true light. But you know, we'll have our time of giving before that. But I want to go ahead and pray. I want to ask God to just bless this word that we've shared together. And Lord, I, I thank you in advance for the days ahead. I do. And I know there's a lot of variety of emotions and feelings connected with it, but I see it as a time of great opportunity for all of us. And I pray that we would be open to what you want to do. And I know it's not always easy. We, we have things we struggle with, but we can give those struggles to you too. And that's okay. You're right with us. You don't abandon us. You don't leave us for dead. It's not the way you do it. If we have any ounce of faith in us, any desire at all, even a smoldering flicker of desire, you can, you can fan that into something of a flame. And that's what you do. You're the light of the world. And I just pray that you would um, work in our lives, illuminate our paths in the days ahead. I just pray for your blessing. Bless our time of giving. Bless the closing song that we close this service with. And then send us into this week with a joyful heart as much as we can. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.